Welcome to the Six Figure Product Biz Podcast. I'm Carrie, a product-based business coach. I started, scaled, and sold a successful multi-six-figure e-commerce business, and now I love teaching entrepreneurs like you how to start, grow, and scale your dream product business. I'm obsessed with all things marketing, e-commerce, and business, and I cannot wait to share all my secrets with you. I also love all things dogs and coffee. Each week, you'll learn step-by-step tangible strategies to help you scale to the next level in your business, skyrocket your sales and traffic, reach more customers, and gain greater visibility in your business. Because I know you don't want to waste your time or energy trying to figure it out all on your own, but you want the business growth roadmap so you can create a profitable product business that gives you the life you love. Whether you're thinking of starting a product biz or scaling yours, this podcast is the secret sauce to making all those dreams come true. So grab your coffee and your favorite notepad and let's get started. Welcome to episode 60 of the Six Figure Product Business Podcast. I love today's episode because it's something that's super different. We have a retail and store expert. So if you've ever dreamt of getting your products inside a store, this episode is perfect for you. So this week's episode, we have um, Maureen Mwangi of Startword Consulting, and she's going to dive into all things retail. So if you've ever, again, thought about getting your products in a Target or Nordstrom, um, today's episode, again, is for you. So Maureen is the brand growth strategist behind some of the some of America's most beloved brands like L'Oreal, Chobani, Dove, and Lay's Potato Chips. Maureen's zone of genius is her rare ability to connect with a market and turn real data into brand growth strategies that drive multi-million dollar growth. So, so excited for this episode. Um, Like I said, my zone of genius is definitely like online. How do you grow your business online? Maureen's zone of genius is definitely like how to get your product into retail stores. So I'm so excited to have her on the show because it's definitely like a very different episode. Um, So grab your coffee, grab your wine. It's going to be a great one. Hi, Maureen. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I am so excited to talk to you. I am so excited to be here and share my experience. Thank you for having me. Yay. Okay, so before we dive into all things product-based businesses, which we both love to talk about, could you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself and a little, like, how did you end up where you are today? Awesome. So uh, my name is Maureen Wangi, and I am a brand growth strategist behind some of the most beloved American brands, such as Chobani, L'Oreal, Dove, and Lays. And right now, I'm the creator of the Product Profit Lab, Big Brand Academy, and Startwood Consulting, which is a consulting agency that primarily focuses on teaching product-based entrepreneurs the sales and marketing strategies they need so that they can turn their beloved product brands into household names. I also have a foundation in Kenya called Taji Foundation that focuses on sponsoring the boys in Africa through their high school education so that they can start building generational wealth that is required in the African continent. Oh, wow. That's, a, that's pretty amazing. How long have you had the foundation for? Um, I started the foundation on my own uh, 2015, so about six years. But right now is when I'm really taking it seriously just because my business is growing as well. And I really want them to be embedded because the mission is the same. Oh, can you just like tell us? I'm just curious. Can you tell us a little bit about what the, you know, foundation is? I know that you mentioned it supports um, boys in Kenya, but maybe like a little bit more. I think that's so interesting and amazing also. 
So let me give you some context. So in the African context, the boys in Kenya are literally sort of responsible for um, taking care of the family, taking care of your woman. And the only way in the African continent to really elevate and grow yourself is through education. And education is not something that anybody can access instantly. It's actually a privilege and an honor to go to school and graduate through high school and college. And due to the poverty levels in Kenya, I really wanted to make sure that the boys are able to get education because education opens up the doors. And once you have the, the, the doors opened, you're able to make an income, you can support your family and start building generational wealth. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> Uh, that's such a cool thing. And also, I love when people use their business to create impact. I mean, that's such an impactful thing. And it must also be so rewarding and fulfilling for you. Oh, yes. And uh, and just to give some context and why I chose this is because when I was getting married, I really saw the stress that my husband went through, like preparing for dowry, ensuring that he was able to... Um, take care of me to the elders in our community. And I was like, why does he have to go through all this? And the underlying factor is just because he's a boy and that's how culturally they are perceived in our society. So I was like, you know what? I, I, can, I can't imagine a boy who cannot be able to cater to their family and really start paying for dowry. And I was like, no, I need to solve this issue. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so, that's awesome. I love that. Um, and then let's kind of dive in. I feel like you have, and we were chatting before we started recording here, but you have such a cool background. And when I was reading, going through your website, I was like, oh my God, I'm just obsessed. I cannot wait to talk to Maureen. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about some of the brands that you've worked with. And I know that a lot of the brands are very much household names. So maybe just a little bit about um, like how you ended up working with these brands and maybe, I don't know, anything that you want to share about that I think would be really interesting. So how I started working with these brands is literally soon after graduating from my master's program, um, I, I got the opportunity to work at Nielsen, which is a marketing agency. Oh. And it's through Nielsen that I started really understanding what is branding and marketing. So the backbone of um, data in, in the big, big brand world is leveraging the data that they have so they can identify opportunities and white space um, scenarios that they can create products that the current customers would love. Mm. And so with that, um, I truly got a peek into how big brands do branding, positioning, packaging, marketing, and strategic thinking. And when that door opened, all the other doors opened, and then I got a chance to be a strategic advisor, brand manager, consultant, you name it. I've done everything for the big brands. And so that experience has been Drowned uh, me into the person that, that I am today, but I really did that because I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs, and my parents really struggled with uh, marketing and branding their products. And I really wanted to provide the information to small brands like them, so they can continue to grow their businesses. Because it's the knowledge and the information that they're lacking, and that's the reason why they're not able to scale. Wow, that is so interesting. I love it so much. Um, I actually worked for I used to live in San Diego when I, when I was in my early 20s. And I worked for a, a, a TV network. And we used to do all like the debriefings going through the numbers. And, um, you know, it was not that this is um, the same thing. But, you know, similar, like using data to figure out what people want. And, 
you know, making decisions based on that. So I think that's super interesting. Um, but which brand did you like working with the most? So just for context, uh, Maureen has worked with L'Oreal, Chobani, Dove, and Lay's. So, so, so cool. Which one was your favorite? My favorite was Lay's. Really? How come? It's... <laughs> That brand is huge. That's, it's like literally a market leader. And the fact that the brand has been able to maintain its equity, even with the evolving space of health and wellness, a lot of people are now turning into eating clean, eating healthy, mm-hmm. conscious about their diet, but Lays continues to maintain its market share and its market, market position. And it's because of how the brand has focused heavily on defining its its brand, positioning itself, and making sure that they, they're, they're standing out in this saturated category. It's so interesting. And of course, this is the thing I was telling you that I was going to bring up. So if you go on Marine's website, you will find out that she invented a chip. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think that is, of course, that's like the one thing that I pulled from your entire website. And I was like, oh my God, that is so cool. Tell us about your chip invention with Lay's because I just think that's the best thing I've ever heard. Um, so I, I was working for, so Lay's is part of the Frito-Lay company and I was working in the mid-Atlantic region, um, the Washington DC area. And the crab spice is like the predominant spice in that <laughs> in that region. Mm-hmm. And across our entire Lay's portfolio, we never had a crab spice chip. We never had a crab spice chip and when you're working in a regional office, your job as a strategist in that office is to maintain the share of the brands within that space. And all our competitors were coming up with the crab spice chip. They were really winning in that specific flavor category. But we as the market leaders didn't have anything like that. So my job was to create a a sell deck or a peach deck to the leaders in our region and ultimately the shareholders of the company on how this product will be successful, what's the market opportunity, who's the target consumer, and what's the future potential of this product. Little did I know that they they actually were going to take this seriously and they approved the concept. It went through R&D. We ended up creating the Lay's Chesapeake Crab Spice uh, product. And within less than a year, it like generated $1.2 million in that region. That's not even nationally. Oh my God. That's so awesome. Is that, and did they still, like, is that ship still around? It's still, it's still around. Yep. Oh my gosh. I love it. That is so cool. I, you know, it's funny because I've, I have always noticed they their unique chip flavors. Like I think they they have one that's like dill pickle or something, and like cor- Korean bulgogi or like I don't know Korean something or other. I'm like, who comes up with that stuff? So now I know. Now I know who comes up with it. People like you. <laughs> we we come up with it because that's grounded in consumer research. And mm-hmm. one thing that I usually say that big brands know that small brands don't know is how to be the voice of their customer. Oh, I love it. Because yes. these flavors are not created in a boardroom. These flavors are created after doing consumer research, after talking to consumers and hearing what they're saying both online and offline. 
Right. That's so interesting. And, you know, like as someone who we both work with, you know, small brands, medium sized brands to help them grow. And that is like literally the cornerstone of growing a business is like you have to deeply understand your customer. Like, why do they want to buy from you? What do you what do they need from you? What can you create that helps solve a pain point or something that they're looking for? So the fact that these bigger companies, of course, have so much data is so interesting and also something that obviously would be so helpful to like some of the smaller guys. Yes. Um, and then maybe like one more. So I also noticed that you also created a Greek yogurt. Could you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> it's so interesting. <laughs> the Greek yogurt, Chobani Greek yogurt, that is another household name in everybody's uh, fridge. That was created. So the, at that point in time, when this product was being invented, Greek yogurt was actually like the, the popular thing. It was like the healthy yogurt to take. And not many people, not many, not many brands had started creating Greek yogurt. So Chobani approached Nielsen and they were like, you guys need to give us a market evaluation and a market assessment on the success of this product. How, what's the white space? What's the opportunity? And what's the size of the price? So I was part of the team that was tasked to literally mine the data do consumer research, be in everybody's homes, interview customers, and really use the algorithm, the, the internal proprietary tool to predict the success of the product. And based on that research, it was such a huge opportunity that the company realized that if they don't do this thing right now, they're not going to do it. And in about a year and a half, 18 months, they launched the original Greek, the, the original Chobani yogurt, not the one with the flip, just the round one when you go to the store. Oh, okay. And they and they started with the basic flavors. It was actually vanilla, strawberry. It was actually vanilla, strawberry, and the plain one that was launched. And then over time, because of the success of this product becoming a household name, is when they started adding different variations. But Greek yogurt was non-existent. Oh wow, that's so interesting. I I'm just like geeking out over this stuff. <laughs> It's so cool because like you take for granted how you see like Chobani in the supermarkets, but you kind of take for granted the beginning of that. Like how did that get started um, before Greek yogurt was popular? So, so interesting. Um, yeah, you've had such a cool background. I I find it extremely fascinating and um, just to work with these bigger brands that have so much information. It's it's incredible. Um, so let's kind of shift a little bit. So I know that you work with lots of brands to help them um, just kind of emerge into um, retail, like retail contracts, um, getting retail ready. So I would love to kind of dive into that a little bit. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about like who, what kind of brands do you work with? And I, again, I'm on this podcast, like I don't teach people at all about retail. It's not I haven't done that. So I love that you can share so much of your own expertise um, on retail stuff. And it's actually a question that I get a lot. Like, how do I get my stuff into retail? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So tell us a little bit about that. So I know um, there are, you know, the phases of a product-based business lifecycle. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then also just a little bit about the retail side, like what people can do if they are interested in retail. So anything that you want to share is is great. Perfect. So I'm going to talk about the phases first, and then that would lead me into how to prepare for retail. So I usually focus on three core phases in the product space, and these are emerging, growth, and scaling. 
There's always maturity or decline, but I'm not going to focus on that in this episode. So when it comes to emerging, this is an entrepreneur who has a concept, but they really haven't tested it out. They haven't validated their offer. They haven't made any sales. So they're, they're in the research and development stage, but are really very serious on taking it into the next level. If this is you, once you have the product developed, what I usually recommend in this stage is defining your brand. And what do I mean by defining your brand? It's really articulating what's the emotional benefit and how do you articulate the emotional benefit? Just identify three adjectives that describe your product. So if you're selling a candle, it could be the candle makes uh, my customer feel very peaceful, calming, grounded. That will help you really start talking about your value proposition and identify who's the audience right? Because the second thing when it comes to defining your brand is really knowing who you're talking to. And it's not knowing the demographics, it's actually knowing the psychographics, like what makes them buy that candle, what makes them buy that skincare product. Once you've articulated that, your next step is selling. And I want you to sell it however you can. It's sell it online, sell it offline, do pop-up events, trunk shows. Like don't be selective on your sales strategy. And I say this because at this stage, a lot of entrepreneurs here get so overwhelmed because they're trying to do everything, but that's not what they're supposed to be focusing on. Mm -hmm. I want you to get like, your first $2,000, $5,000, because once you get your first $2,000, $5,000, you know that you have a proof of concept. You know that you have a product that people actually like. You know you have a product that can actually sell. Then once you refine that, you've, you've refined that process, then you graduate to the growth stage. And in the growth stage, you have consistent sales. You as a CEO, you're asking yourself, is this thing real or is it a fluke? Is it a happy accident? Like you're literally um, skyrocketing when it comes to growing. And here I want you to focus on understanding your numbers understanding your numbers, knowing what's happening inside your business, because the difference between this stage and the next stage is what you do with the data that's hidden in your business. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing I want you to focus on in this particular stage is I really want you to focus on grasping a good marketing channel, like being an expert in a marketing channel as you build your audience. Because shiny object syndrome is another problem in this stage where we want to do everything because everyone is saying do things online. But I want you to be the expert in one thing. Learn how to do that marketing um, for your company because in the next stage of scaling, you're going to start hiring out for that role mm -hmm. you, so that you can elevate and shift into the CEO status and become the visionary. Because in the scaling stage, the reason a lot of entrepreneurs in this space don't scale is because they're constantly focusing on the year-over-year -year mentality. So what I did last year, I'm going to do this year, but probably add a bit more. Mm -hmm. but, but that's not going to get you anything. You're just going to probably get incremental results. But if you want to make quantum leaps, you have to become a visionary. You have to set a vision for three, what's your vision for three years, five years, 10 years, and then decide what's the growth strategy at each stage. Because growth scaling at this stage is going to come outside of yourself. It's going to come outside of what you're currently doing. It could, it's going to look like innovation innovation that's complementary to your brand. It's going to look like an additional channel, which could be now retail. 
because you've already had success on your e-commerce store. It's going to come like adding more people in your team. So uh, duplicating yourself. Right. I love that. Can you, you mentioned something like become an expert. I think this was in the growth stage. You said become an expert on one marketing channel. Can you elaborate that on that a little bit? Because uh, just in case people might not understand like what you mean by that. Do you mean like, I know that you said e-commerce, retail, etc. So when you say be an expert in one thing, could you just talk a little bit about that? So this is, this is for somebody who's in the e-commerce space. And what I mean is if 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 paid strategy has been breaking for you, make good use of the paid strategy, right? Okay. If you've been running Facebook ads, continue to maximize and optimize your ads and exp- and really become an expert in that channel. Rather than do paid ads, then you hear this text message marketing, then you hear there's this real happening on Instagram, then your marketing becomes fragmented. Mm-hmm. Right, because it's the marketing channel that will help you grow your list, your email list, which will help you build your audience, and so your your community is growing. Okay, yeah, I like that. Um, and I, of course, started laughing when you said the shiny object syndrome. I'm like, yep, yep, got that. <laughs> um, so, okay, so those are those are great. So, emerging growth, scaling, and then. What talk about the retail angle? So, someone, a lot of listeners here are small e-commerce, like maybe doing five five to ten k months. What happens next? Like, if they want to get into stores um, again, like I, this is something that I don't teach about at all. I don't talk about it. So, I'm also very curious and interested to hear what you'll say. But like, tell us what happens when someone does want to get into retail. Like, how does that look? Like, how does it work? Um, talk about that a little bit. Okay, so the first thing is you have to evaluate yourself and your business first. The first thing is personal evaluation. For yourself as an individual, are you ready to handle something big? Are you ready to have no control over your business? Because, and I say this because when you're doing e-commerce, you have a lot of control on your product, how you sell, your pricing. But when you get into retail, you you don't have as much control as you would have in e-commerce. So if your answer is yes, then you're perfect. The other, the second thing from a business standpoint is, are you profitable? If you're not profitable in your business, don't even consider getting into retail, because mm-hmm. cash flow is going to be very important when it comes into to retail. The second thing is capacity and capability. If you're a solo entrepreneur. You don't want to think about retail on right now because it's going to be completely overwhelming and one, one business is going to decline. But if you have the capacity, you have a team, you have the infrastructure, then you're set for that. The third thing is if you have a clearly articulated brand position, you have a community, you have a dialed in um, marketing strategy, you, you know your best selling product then you're also ready. So those three things, usually positioning, capability, and cash flow in your business that matter the most. So once you say yes, there's certain things that you have to ensure that you're ready for. From a packaging standpoint, and I'm I'm speaking uh, uh, highly to the people who are selling skincare, beauty, or fashion, because these are the people that I know. When it comes to skincare, you have to make sure that your packaging sort of mirrors what's on the shelf of your ideal store. So let's say you're going to Target and you want to be on the skincare aisle. 
go out, look at the skincare aisle, take a picture and look at the commonalities on their packaging. And I want you to make sure that your packaging mirrors what's on in store. And I say this because the packaging in store has already been approved by a buyer. So you have to make sure that by the time you're presenting it to your buyer, you're, you're looking just like what's in store. And then the technical details, of course, you have to make sure you have your barcode because that's needed in retail. The second thing is comes to pricing, your margins. Because that's a conversation that you're going to have to have with a buyer in store. And I say this because as business owners, we're so excited on having our product at shelf. But you have to understand that when a buyer is evaluating whether to take your product, he is also considering eliminating another product that's already selling. So he has, you have to be able to articulate A, the demand of your product, and B, show him or her that they can make money from your product. And that's why pricing is important. The third thing is placement. You have to think about your audience. How do they shop in your particular category? Are they shopping when they walk into a store? Let's say you're going into a grocery store. Are they focusing around the perimeter? Are they buying a product because it's on an end cap? Are they buying a product because it's on a display? Or are they buying a product because it's in the aisle? Like you have to start thinking, how do I want to place my product so that my existing audience can see. Mm. And then the third thing, the fourth thing is promotion. And I say this, think about promotion as marketing. Promotion is not uh, discounting your product because when it comes to promotion in the retail store, you as a CEO is responsible for developing and crafting your marketing strategy in the store. The only thing that the retailer is doing is placing your product on shelf. So you have to uh, think about what's my marketing strategy in retail? How am I going to leverage my existing e-commerce uh, customers or clients to go to the, to the store? Or how am I going to partner with the buyer when they're drafting their promotional calendar to partner with them, either with their private label or have shelf talkers or floor talkers? Like you have to think about these things. That's that's what I say when it comes to preparing, uh, when it uh, when it comes to being retail ready. And then from a technical standpoint, because people will be like, how do I get into retail? <laughs> the first, the, how to get into retail is getting in contact with a buyer. Mm -hmm. Getting in contact with a buyer, and there are different ways of getting into contact with a buyer. The most common way of getting in contact with a buyer is attending like a vendor day. Think about the retailer that you've truly admired. Most retailers have a vendor day or a vendor event, and they usually share, show it on their website. Attend those vendor events. If they, uh, when you showcase the product, they'll be like, oh, we're interested in this, and they'll invite you for an interview. The second way that most of my clients have been able to get into retail is being part of um, some mentorship programs that have a connection with a buyer. Like I have one client who got into Myers, um, is getting into Myers this fall, and she was able to get into retail because she was part of a mentorship program where the buyer was looking for small businesses in the local community, and we just had to to teach her how to pitch well, and she pitched yeah. the product and she got in. Oh wow! Yeah, so cool. Um, I feel like I have so many questions. <laughs> okay. I want to backtrack a little and now I forget. I, I feel like I need to keep like a pen and paper so I can write up my questions while you're talking because I feel like I have so many and now I forget. Um, you were talking about the like early stages of, oh, okay, I remember. So 
when you were talking about going into a store and like taking a photo of products and you want the products to mirror what's already there. That's so interesting to me because in my head, I was when you were talking about that, I was like, because I feel like what we always teach people is it's important to make your product like stand out and look different. And it's so interesting to hear that actually, no, in the retail space, you actually want things to look a little bit more maybe sim- similar in some way because they, that they are going for like a specific look or something. So it's less about the look, but it's more about the psychology of the buyer. Okay. Because if you think about um, right now, I'm holding a, a shampoo. And when you look at the shampoo, it's usually the logo of the brand, an icon of the product, what it does, what it's made of, and the size. Because that's what okay. a consumer wants to know. What is it made of? What does it do? What, what's, what's the brand? Period. Okay. And then all the details on the back end. Okay, gotcha. So less about like the branding and more about like the information kind of exactly. stuff. Exactly. Okay, gotcha. Um, and then maybe this would be super helpful because again, a lot of people listening, I think, would love to be in specific retail stores. So, what is maybe like paint a picture of what is an ideal person like? Where are they in their business where they would be ready to go into retail? Maybe just like say you know this a beauty brand, they have like two employees, their margins are like X, Y, and Z. Um, Maybe just like paint a picture of an example, because I think a lot of people listening, they might be in a position to go to retail, but they might not be sure if like if it's ready for them or something. Uh, I would say if you are, if you're close to the multi-six, multi-six or seven-figure entrepreneur doing about 50 to 60, 65% of profit, then you're ready to go. Okay. 60% profit. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, this is so fun. I love it. Um, any other like fun examples of clients you've worked with that have gotten into like some well-known stores? Yes, I've had, uh, we, we have one that's getting in the fall and she actually sells umbrellas, LED umbrellas, which is just amazing. Wow. But she loves her product so much that the peach, the buyers were like, we need it. We don't even need to know the pricing, the margins. It looks like you know what you're doing. We're taking you in. And so she's super excited. Then we had uh, another lady. She graduated from our program that got into Nordstrom with her wow. fashion accessories. Wow. Yes. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And then also just to say, um, just to piggyback on what I said, um, multi-six doing seven, uh, doing 60% profit. I also want to say, it goes back, I'm going to say depends because when I look at, um, her name is Vanessa, Vanessa is getting into Myers this fall. She's really brand new, but that was her desire coming into the program. Mm-hmm. She was like, um, I'm, 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 I don't have, to, I'm, I'm older. I don't have so much time to to spend on e-commerce. I don't want to understand social media. I really want to get into like Walmart or the big box retailer. So initially when she was coming in, her vision was to get into retail. So even when we were drafting her strategy, she never objected to the pricing. She never objected to going door to door. She never objected to doing cold calling, sending out emails to buyers because that's what she really wanted. So sometimes it also depends on how hard are you ready to hustle? Okay. You know? Yeah. You know? I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. And I I sometimes will just be in Target and I, and I always actually wonder, like, I wonder how 
how do they end up here? You know, um, especially for the bigger stores, because there's so much existing product out there. And there's also brand loyalty. I mean, that's like a whole different topic. But someone that shops at a, like Target, they go for specific products. And unless there's a new product that is like, I forget the brand. It's by um, Lo Bosworth from The Hills Show. She has a new company. I, and I, I'm blanking on the name of it, but she sells like vitamins and, but it's like the super trendy modern packaging and like, you know, the script font and everything is colorful and bright. Love Well, I think it's called actually. Oh, Love Well. Yes. Yes. And, but like when you go to Target, it's like literally displayed right in your face. Like you cannot miss that product. And that's how I first heard about them was because I literally saw them in Target and they had like huge displays everywhere. And once I saw them the first time, now I notice them in other places that I've been to. But I think like when you were talking about the positioning or I think it was the positioning in stores, you know, obviously they have made a bigger effort to like push that brand a little bit more than a product that's like buried into the shelf that you probably just will pass over. Yes. And that means they're investing. Mm-hmm. And that's why you have to have the cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. And I know um, when I used to have my pet subscription box business, one of my, a vendor that I worked with, she had a dog treat company. She made venison dog treats. And this was a small business. Like she literally made them out of her house, I believe. So she's like in her house, um, drying out like pieces of meat (laughs) in in some kind of a, um, like, I think it's like a humidifier. I I don't know. However, people make dog treats, but, um, so anyway, she was telling me that she was getting a deal with Costco and I'm not going to say the brand name because I don't want to give out personal information, but she was working on a deal with Costco, but eventually the deal ended up falling through because they, they wanted, she needed to give them like so much product before she even got paid for anything and she basically like couldn't do it she I think she had to give them like I think I think she told me it was like a truck load of product and I don't know the exact quantity but I'm gonna guess like tens of thousands of dog treat bags before she ever got paid and like she just couldn't do it and so the cash flow that's feel like that relates to the cash flow issue that you were talking about. Like you have to have money to be able to also create lots of product to give to these big retail brands. Yes. And and I'm so glad you said that I should have expanded because their credit terms are between 30 to 120 days. Mm-hmm. And for some retailers, they'll actually pay you when the product leaves the shelf. So oh, just wow. because just because they bought from you or you you're seeing a product in shelf doesn't mean that the CEO has already been paid. Yeah, And that's why when you go to stores, you'll notice a really high turnover on products on shelf. Like you can go this month and find one product, but the next month it's not there. Because if that product doesn't move, the first thing the category buyer will do is remove it. So we call it delisting the product off the shelf. Oh, wow. And, and for the big brands, we were doing this annually. Every September, October, we were always reviewing the data on all our products on shelf and eliminate the skews of the products that are not selling because the buyer is like, this thing needs to get out and needs to be replaced. Hmm. Interesting. So yes. cutthroat. It's very cutthroat. And <laughs> it's personally, people ask me the battle between e-commerce and retail. And I'm, I skew more heavily towards e-commerce because I know the passion and the purpose as to why we're creating these products. And I feel like you should have control of what you're selling, you know? Yeah. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I also think it's a good balance if you can do both, like like someone like Glossier. Um, I have actually no idea if they're sold in shops. I know that they have their own like pop-up shops, but you know, they obviously are very big now. They do very well online. And so I feel like that would be a good brand that also could sell in retail and be fine. Like they already have their existing audience. They have their brand loyalty and you know, quite frankly, their social following is massive. Um, I, I don't even know how that brand started, but they, they're, they're killing it. Like their content is amazing and they're just doing big things. But yeah, with retail, um, just from the, some of the stories I've heard with like some of my old vendors I used to work with, it's can be hard for some of the small people. So, um, and if it's hard, just, I prefer small local boutiques, your community, just think about that. Try test out, test out small local boutiques, see if you like it. If you love it, then think about the big box, the targets, the Costco, the Walmart, you name them. And for people that, and I like for my subscription box, I did pitch myself to be in a couple boutiques in Los Angeles. So I used to live in um, Southern California and I did pitch to, um, you know, Vanderpump Rules on Bravo. This was like one of my little shining moments for my business. Um, they opened up a rescue in LA. And so it was, I think it's called Vanderpump Rescue. And they had a little boutique shop where they sold pet goods. And so I reached out, I kind of pitched myself to be sold in their shops. And they, they said yes. And so I actually did sell some of my boxes in their, um, their shop for a bit, which was, for me, so exciting. And like, it wasn't even about the money. It was just the fact that my product was going to be sold in like Vanderpump Rescue. (laughs) It was so ridiculous. Um, But, you know, so I, I, I did pitch and I did try to get into some other shops and it just never really worked out. But any kind of tips or uh, suggestions for people that, you know, these are small, a small business, you know, they're still making a lot of their own product. What are some easy ways where they can get featured in like local shops? Oh, this is such a good question. So I would say relationship building with the owner, like you see how you walked into the store, you built a relationship, you talk to them, do it. Because that's what most of my clients are doing right now. So they sell beauty products. And what they've been doing is they've been going to a spa, having taken the spa services, connecting with the owner, asking them, do you sell these products? The owner will be like, oh, I've actually never thought about it. Hey, I have this product. Do you want to try on consignment? And then it's they start small, they buy uh, minimum orders of a thousand, then it becomes recurring, and then ultimately they decide to stock their products. So I would say cold calling, cold calling meaning just going into the stores, having a relationship with them, nurturing it over time, and not being afraid to talk to to, to talk about what you sell. I love that. And then what about the num- the money part? So I know this is something that a lot of my, especially like clients that I work with where we are working to increase their profits because a lot of times one they don't know what their profits are like they literally have no idea what their profit margin is and and two they don't really know how to improve that so those are some of the things that I have worked with with some of my clients but in terms of the numbers when it comes to like pitching your re- pitching to a retail store I know that the norm is like 50% as if you're a wholesaler or a distributor pricing um any like, how does that look for like a small business? Because I know a lot of people they they have their product, they're hand making it, or 
you know, in some capacity getting it manufactured and they don't want to give up so much profit. Like (laughs) how can they get their stuff into these small boutique retail shops or like mom and pop shops in their local areas, but still not give away all the profit? You can start off with consignment. A lot of people don't like consignment because it can be stressful. But what what consignment means is the buyer doesn't have to buy the product. They'll pay you once it sells. And what you can do is you can do a revenue split share. So you can take 70%. They can take 30%. Okay. That's that's okay. that's that's one of the easiest ways to do when you're starting. But then when you scale, you'll actually be like, no, I don't want to do consignment because sometimes it can get a little bit clunky, especially mm-hmm. if the store owner is not tracking it accurately. Okay. Mm-hmm. But you can't bypass that if you if you don't have your profits right, you have a pricing issue. Mm-hmm. So you have to fix your pricing. And when I say fix your pricing is ensure that you have all your costs baked in. Do you have your raw materials baked into your product? Do you have your labor calculated? Do you have your overhead calculated? And then work on brand development to create that additional profit. So think about what's the value of my brand at that profit and ensure that you're selling at, at ensure that your pricing strategy is accurate depending on your channel. Mm-hmm. And so have your wholesale price should not be the price that you're selling on your website. Yep. So have your correct retail and your wholesale, because if that is not right, even within your business, it's going to be hard to make investments like paid ads because you need right. profits to run the paid ads. Yeah. Otherwise you always be breaking even or not profitable. Yes. Yeah. Pricing is such a, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing with people. And I think what I found um, just over the years of working with people is that people get very afraid of the, and I know numbers is something that you like to talk about too, but like they get very afraid of the numbers part and like, oh my God, I don't want to do my accounting. I don't want, I don't want to look at QuickBooks. Like I, you know, it's, I feel like it's so scary and overwhelming that they just avoid looking at it all together, which in turn, then you don't actually know your numbers. You don't know what your profit is. Like you don't know um, how you can change that stuff. And um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think the, the money and the pricing and the profits, it's a, it's a thing that people, it's so important, but so many businesses just kind of like avoid it. I don't know. Have you felt like that with some of your clients or students in any of your programs? Yes. So typically what they say is when I look at my numbers, it sort of stifles my creativity, but I usually Mm -hmm. come and tell them that you have to look at your numbers so that it can empower you to be more creative. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at your numbers, you understand, yes, I have room to do this. This is a potential for growth. So let me capitalize on this opportunity. So the benefit of looking at your numbers really is so much higher than not looking at it because it saves you the insanity and the craziness that goes on if something doesn't work. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I love so I'm someone who loves analytics, like give me your Google Analytics and I will dive in and I will be super happy Um, like accounting and things like that. I do feel like are a little bit more on the boring side, but I love analytics and I love, I do love those numbers, but yeah, I do feel like I can understand like the crushing the creativity thing. That's super funny. And that's also a really great response. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Um, Okay. 
So this was so interesting. I feel like I just learned so much about you in terms of, of retail and just all the things if people want to get into retail. Okay. So one last thing. I know that I don't want to take up your whole day. Um, can we talk about, you talk a lot about big brand strategies. So mm-hmm. what do big brands know that growing brands do not know? This is such a great question. <laughs> big brands know how to be the voice of their customer. They really know uh, how to represent their brand in such a way that it magnetizes their ideal customer because they use the emotional resonance to attract them. And I say that because brand building is such a core pillar in the brand DNA, like in everything they do, they always think brand before product. While in this product space or the small business space, it's always product before brand. And what do I mean? I'm going to take an example of a candle. A big brand will market the candle in the sense that it's going to help you uh, be calm. It's going to help you. um, It's going to support you when you're journaling. While the small brand will focus on it's made of lavender, it's made of soy wax candle, it's it's recyclable, it's sustainable. So we lead, the small businesses lead heavily with the functional benefit of it, while the big brands lead with the emotional benefit of it because they know people buy through emotion. I love that. Yes, that's so interesting. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I do see a lot of that on e-commerce websites, just you know, they focus only on the features. Like if it's a handbag, for example, I was just talking about this the other day. We were looking at different handbag examples and I was giving them an example of a brand who, instead of just saying, like leading off their product page with, it has a zipper, it's made of leather, um, Mm -hmm. it does this. They talked about the storytelling, like take your bag on your next vacation to Hawaii where it, you know, you can do X, Y, and Z with the bag. Like they literally put you in a position of where you'd be using the bag in real life. And it was such a, and I'm not, maybe it was Claire V. I'm blanking on the brand name, but I think it was Claire V. Um, it was just such a great job of storytelling. And like, again, talking about that emotional thing and not just jumping into the features, which actually people don't care about. Like that's not going to sell your product, but storytelling, telling people where you use it how it makes you feel, what the transformation is for you, how it helps you. That's the stuff that people actually care about. And it's such a good point to always remember is the emotional part versus the features. Like stories sell, features tell. Is that the, that the slogan? Yes. No. Yes. Okay. yes. Like I'm reversing it. Yeah. I love that. Did you read this? I'm, I'm sure you did. Have you read the story brand by Donald Miller? Oh, yes. It's a classic for me. (laughs) It is. It is. It's such a good book. Um, All right. Well, this was amazing, Maureen. Um, You're such a wealth of knowledge. And I it's interesting for me to learn a little bit more about the retail side of things. So thank you for that. Um, Tell everyone where they can find you and what kind of offers do you have? Like, how do you work with people? Perfect. So how I work with people is I have two programs, the Product Profit Lab, which is our business incubator program for anyone who is looking to grow their business. And our program promise is we help product-based entrepreneurs build a brand, increase their profits, and maximize sales. And we also have Big Brand Academy, which is for the more established entrepreneur. And here, what we primarily do is 
teach you how to create a predictable seven-figure recurring revenue and teach you how to systematize your business so that you can become a market leader without killing yourself in the process. And this is for somebody who's making more than a multi-six-figure in their business. And where you can find all this information is on my website. You can go to www.startwardconsulting.com, which is S-T-A-R-T-W-A-R-D consulting.com. Or you can find me on Instagram at Maureen Mwangi Official. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, this was so fun and yeah, super thank interesting. You. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you for, for having sharing. me. Of course. Such a great episode. I loved Maureen's background in particular. Like I loved the fact that she literally named a Lay's potato chip. I feel like that is so interesting. And of course, I geek out over interesting things like that. Like how does that even happen? It's just amazing. So anyway, be sure to follow Maureen and you can check her out at startwardconsulting.com or her Instagram, Maureen Mwangi Official. Everything will be linked in the show notes. And let me know what you think about this episode. I'm so excited for you to hear this episode. And I would love to know send me a DM. This is going to be a little quiz to see who listens to the end of the episode. If you could name a Lay's potato chip brand, like which flavor would you name and why? And I want you to send me a DM. I think that would be super fun. And anyone that does, I will send you a secret little surprise. So again, send me a DM on Instagram and tell me which potato chip flavor or name you would come up with and why. Like I need to hear the why behind the reasoning. So All right, guys, uh, another amazing episode. Thank you so much for your support. Appreciate you guys so much. And I will see you guys next week. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you love this episode, please go ahead and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and then take a screenshot and share it on your Instagram stories. Tag me in it at Carrie A. Fitzgerald. My name is in the show notes. Thank you so much. And I'll see you guys next week.